Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Today is Election Day, and eight years ago, Congressman John Lewis said, the right to vote is precious, almost sacred. People fought for it, bled for it, died for it. Honor their sacrifice. Vote. Voting is the foundation of our democracy. And this hour, we'll hear about a young adult book called The Constitution Decoded. Author Katie Kennedy explains the ideas, concepts, and rules fundamental to America. And as America is a nation of immigrants, Later, we'll hear an uplifting story from a Liberian-American woman who just opened a store in Atlanta employing refugee women selling ethical fashion made by women. Now, transcending political differences with music. During the early months of the pandemic, pianist Julie Coucheron felt terribly depressed about not being able to perform in public concerts. Musicians, actors, comedians, dancers all over the world need an audience to complete their art. Julie gathered the strength to organize a virtual concert with Atlanta's top performers of chamber music, and the response was fantastic. The third concert with these Atlanta All-Stars will take place Sunday, November 8th from the Sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church on Peachtree, part of the Concerts at First series. Julie Kushran joins us now with her brother, violinist David Kushran, also concertmaster of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us, Lois. Thank you. It's good to hear you. Julie, you set quite an example with these concerts streamed from First Presbyterian. 
Please tell us about the progression of the programs. Who noticed? Well, so we started off in June and we had no idea that it was going to be such a success and that so many people were going to tune in and watch from all over the world. I just wanted to put together music that we all love to play and that we have seen that the audience liked to listen to. And so that was in June. And then after seeing the overwhelming response to that concert, we decided to do another one in August. And now we're in November and we are doing our third installment. And, you know, trying to put together a program is, is not difficult when you have all this amazing music in the world. And this one is a little bit different. We have a couple of a little bit more modern pieces on there, not necessarily modern, but uh, we have two pieces by Piazzolla and one by Schickele, the American composer Peter Schickele. It's gonna be a, a little bit different and I'm just really excited to be able to present this to the audience. Well, Peter Schickele, is also known as PDQ Bach, right. a very gifted composer and a hilarious wit. Will the piece on this program be funny? Yes, absolutely. It's kind of a little hoedown, I would say. <laughs> it sounds like it anyways. And it's just such a fun, liberating piece. You know, we've played this in concerts before and the audience just absolutely love it. They're clapping together with the piece. The performers love it too. You know, I, David once got out of his chair and started, you know, dancing around on stage. Not Maybe not dancing. That's probably oh, a little. I, I <laughs> wish I after could have all. seen that. Um, no, so just, it's just a really fun, awesome piece. And we're going to end the concert with it. David, you and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra are performing on a virtual stage now. You are together in Symphony Hall, but without a live audience in the hall. How would you describe the experience of playing without a live audience? It's very strange. We started recording... Um pieces online and uh, we're having maximum 35 people on the stage and we're all sitting about um, six feet apart the winds are 10 feet apart and it kind of feels like a new world that we have to adjust to we've never done anything like this before and uh, uh, it's strange to play a concert while there's nobody in the hall and I think that you know we learned a lot of lessons from this pandemic but uh, one of them is how important it is to have uh, an audience and, and we really feed and play for the audience in the hall and uh, to imagine the audience being there when we're recording uh, it's, a, it's a very different experience so we're, we're all learning through this and uh, I think it's great that my sister was putting on these concerts at uh, Peachtree Press so we can keep playing and uh, 
and and meet each other and the musicians can can get to play together again and um, so it doesn't you know it hasn't been six seven eight months of absolutely nothing going on now our beloved music director robert spomer has said the music exists between the musicians and the audience that you are creating on stage you are providing the experience the audience absorbs and revels in it and i guess all you can do now is imagine the live audience at home listening do you picture people in the seats or or gathered around a screen at home <laughs> it's that's a good question i try to imagine them at home and i've I, you know sometimes on facebook you can see people comment live um, in live time so you can see them actually writing stuff like while we're playing and people are saying oh we're clapping at home I promise we're clapping um, <laughs> and but what's a little bit different about this concert on the 8th of November is the fact that we actually do allow some people in the audience the First Presbyterian Church has a seat of about 800 people and we're allowing about 10% of that to be a live audience in the church, very socially distant and with masks on, of course, taking all precautions. But this one will be a little bit different. So it is actually possible to be there in person and watch this for a very few limited amount of people. And you can find all of those details on First Presbyterian Church's websites because you have to register, of course, to um, to be able to go into the church and um, you have to go through um, some health checks. And um, But it's very exciting for us to be able to have at least a few people in the audience. And then we just imagine the audience at home um, as well and that's that's all we can do right now just trying to make the best out of out of the situation indeed and julie you used the sports reference for all stars david have you thought about maybe putting cardboard audience members in symphony hall with big smiles on their face <laughs> i've never thought of that uh... But uh, I, <laughs> maybe I we think should. we need it. I think I think we need or or even puppets. Maybe we can get the Center for Puppetry Arts to come up with some puppets in Symphony Hall seats. In any case, you are adapting to the new normal, and what matters most is that you are making this glorious music. Another sports reference, if I may, keeping in line with these all-star musicians playing. David, you are pinch-hitting, if you will, for the first violinist who would be in the Vega Quartet taking on some very demanding repertoire with their Beethoven series. How are you finding time to master all of this repertoire and practice everything you need with the ASO virtual fall season as well. well it's been an absolute joy to be a guest uh, first violinist for the Vegas String Quartet in this uh, Beethoven cycle and uh, finding time uh, 
has been the least of my worries actually um it is it doesn't feel like uh it doesn't feel like work i'm really really enjoying um playing uh the beethoven cycle with them we've done two concerts and we have the last one coming up uh this sunday and uh, it's really the core repertoire for violin and I think when uh, my sister and I are fighting over which instrument is better, um, I always have the checkmate argument that she can never do the Beethoven string quartet. So that's always a winning argument. Um, I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I I love this. This is a form of sibling rivalry. <laughs> I wondered, with being as close as you two are, if there were such fights. But hey, David. As one who is in the piano camp, not that I don't adore the violin, you do not have 27 Mozart piano concertos. No, and it's not <laughs> fair. It's not fair. And we also don't have five Beethoven uh, concertos. That is true. However, we can all make glorious music and listen to your glorious music together. Before we go, I see there is some tango music on Sunday's program. What can you tell us about the Piazzolla? Well, um, Piazzolla has some incredible music and it's been arranged for all kinds of instruments. It's that tango, just intense, beautiful music. And we're doing a piece called Oblivion. And this one is arranged for piano, violin, and cello. And I get to play it with um, Helen Kim and Sheree Kruger. And they're two of my very dear friends. And it's just such a romantic, expressive piece. It's not that long, but like most of the pieces on the program, we've chosen just kind of the, just to indulge in beautiful, amazing music. Um, and actually, speaking of the Mozart concertos, Lois, um, we're doing... The concerto number 21, I'm playing the second movement with a string quartet doing the orchestra parts for it. And that's one of my favorite pieces and um, I'm playing it kind of like a tribute to somebody else as well. And it's amazing. And I know that David has his Beethoven quartets, but the Mozart concertos, they are a good contender, I have to admit. <laughs> and hopefully you will too, David. <laughs> who arranged that piece? I, I actually don't know who arranged it. I tried to search for it online because I really wanted to play it, but we don't have an orchestra. and But we do have some incredible string players. And I thought, you know, there must be some kind of arrangement of this. And I found it online and I don't know who did it, but I found the parts and um, and I, I managed to put it together. And I have David, Helen, Inzi and Sheree accompanying me. And um, I'm so excited to be able to perform that. Oh, that will be fantastic. Ever resourceful musicians, Julie Kushram and 
David Kusheron, you are such exquisite artists, sweet people, and your sibling fights are only on the highest level about artistry and in good fun. Thank you both so very much. Cannot wait to hear you. Thank you for having us, Louis. Yeah, it's great to be with you again, Louis. Violinist and Atlanta Symphony Concert Master David Coucheron with his sister, the acclaimed pianist Julie Coucheron. The All-Star Atlanta Chamber Music Concert takes place Sunday, November 8th in the sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church on Peachtree. This is part of their Concerts at First series. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This being election day, it seems a good time to hear about how to better understand the U.S. Constitution. When you look at the vibrant cover of a book called The Constitution Decoded, you'll presume it's meant for children, and that's true. As the publisher recommends, it's for children ages 10 and up. But the book provides so much information with such clarity, I think adult readers will find it equally informative and enjoyable. Katie Kennedy is the author of this guide to the document that shapes our nation. She joined me in early September to talk about the book and what inspired her to write it. We wanted to provide a translation uh, into plain language of the U.S. Constitution so that even relatively young children could understand it. And also, as you mentioned, plenty of adults who need a refresher, plenty of parents who are homeschooling unexpectedly or helping with distance learning and can hide a copy in their drawer and tell their kids things that they just learned an hour before, you know. So we put the text of the Constitution on the left-hand pages Uh, and then the translation on the right hand, with the hope that people could go back and forth and say, oh, that's what that sentence means. Uh, And phrases that simply can't be translated that that people need to know, like bill of attainder or ex post facto law or corruption of blood, uh, we provided a glossary, some kind of a definition for those words uh, to try to help people. And then Ben Kirchner did illustrations. And so it's colorful and it's, I think, non-intimidating. Uh, and kind of fun in that way. The only thing is that Ben is English, 
and George Washington is our host uh, sort of through the book. So I checked the illustrations carefully to make sure he didn't slip some kind of uh, English revenge in there. You know? <laughs> he is not wearing a red coat. So I think Ben was honorable that way. He was. The illustrations, beginning with the cover art, immediately reveal that this is an inclusive depiction of history. Just looking at the cover, of course, George Washington's in the middle. I see Lincoln, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and uh, Frederick Douglass. This is a very different approach from the very cover. Did you and Ben Kirshner work together as to how the book was laid out and which illustrations would be included? No, we really didn't. We had no contact at all, really. Uh, everything went through the editor, and they would ask for clarification on some uh, illustrations. And uh, poor Ben, I, I made him redo a couple of things that weren't quite right, perhaps to an American eye. I mean, he, he did a beautiful job. I mean, it, it's a book for a U.S. audience, obviously. It's the U.S. Constitution. Also, to make sure that uh, everything was clear in that regard. But it really was the editor uh, who decided on layout on uh, some of those things. Just flipping through, I see the occasional did you know sections on the left side of the page under the unadulterated <laughs> version that appears of the Constitution. And here is one with an illustration of Dr. Martin Luther King saying, the last line of the 15th Amendment, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, isn't usually a very controversial line. But massive white resistance to black voting rights led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You are tackling some very complex history in the did you know sections, trying to interpret simply. How long did this take you to write, Katie? We did it very quickly. Uh, we wanted to get the, the book out before the election to give people some help with understanding the document itself. We're not trying to make uh, any kind of a partisan argument on, on any sort of issue, but simply to give people the tool to understand the document, to understand the Constitution, to see what it says. You know, people so often say they have a constitutional right to this or that, um, you know, a constitutional right to the last piece of pie or something. And, um, you know, but what does it actually say? So we wanted to get it out quickly. And um, the first draft, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple of months. And I put in so, so, so many sidebars, you know, extra boxes. And the uh, editor pointed out to me it wasn't supposed to be an 800-page book. <laughs> which shocked and distressed me. This is why you have editors. And so we redid it and cleaned it up and made it um, much, much uh, smaller. And uh, I think that's less intimidating for people. You have taught college history and American government for 30 years, I read. 
Why did you decide to create this book for younger students? It became clear that my efforts in teaching American government had not produced uh, widespread constitutional literacy. And uh, there, there were still some questions out there. I, I had a student once, um, lovely guy, really enjoyed him. Uh, but he asked in class once if the presidential requirement, the qualification to be president of being a natural born citizen, would that disqualify him from ever being president because his mother had a C-section with him and he was therefore not natural born. And so we had a good time with that. Uh, but I thought, well, possibly it would be good to, you know, to give people the tool to actually understand the document because the language is old and it is hard to go through. And if you tell somebody you're going to spend the afternoon reading the Constitution together, people don't normally jump up and high five each other and run around the room, you know, howling with glee. It can be intimidating. And uh, we wanted to make it fun and give people a, a colorful book um, with short segments and, um, and small boxes, something that could be used as a reference, um, or people can simply read through. My most vivid memory of the 2016 Democratic National Convention was when Kizir Khan spoke, the father of the U.S. Army officer killed in action. And this speech that Kizir Khan gave was in response to the anti-Muslim rhetoric that had surrounded the Republican presidential candidate's campaign. And here is this father of a fallen, distinguished officer who was born in Pakistan, standing there with his wife, clearly very emotional. And he pulled out his copy of the Constitution, a pocket edition that he said he knew inside out and carried with him. And I wondered if that moment informed you at all when writing this book. That was a very powerful moment as a, you know, a beautiful thing to see someone pull out their constitution and, and you know, talk about the importance of it to them. I, I felt the power of that moment too. It didn't make any specific difference in the writing of the book although it is very moving to see how, um, how much this document means to people and, and how many people do understand you know, the importance of it, the foundational role of it. And some of the, the founding fathers and framers of the Constitution after the revolution, when the US was still under the Articles of Confederation uh, before the Constitution was written, wrote very poignantly of having risked everything in the revolution, having risked their lives and their, their families' futures, uh, having lost comrades in order to have the right to self-government. And then under the articles, they were failing and they knew the British were watching and they knew the British were laughing at them. And after all of the sacrifice and the danger of the revolution uh, to, to win the right to govern themselves and then not to be able to do it, uh, and how painful that was. And so they took this second crack at it with the Constitution um, and knocked it out of the park. But you know, it, it's very moving, I think, uh, to read even how they felt about that and how important the document was to them. I was wondering in terms of particular 
portions of the Constitution that stood out to you as needing special attention in presenting this guide, if you will, to students? Were there any surprises for you, or were there any sections that were more challenging than others? Well, the Electoral College was a challenge from the standpoint that the writing in the original document is very long and complex, and a lot of passive voices and a lot of matted sentence structures. And since we wanted to make it um, small bites and not overwhelm people, it was hard to chop that up and still have it be meaningful. Um, it's also a little hard to understand. I think in general, people understand that the Electoral College means that you know, you and I, regular people, don't vote for the president, or you know, the candidate we want to be president. We vote for the people who, the electors, who will in fact vote for that person. I'm not sure people realize that that right is not guaranteed in the Constitution, um, that a popular vote is custom but not required, and that a governor could simply declare that Georgia's votes are go to this candidate and not allow people to vote. Uh, a state legislature could say California's votes go to this candidate. Uh, and people are not guaranteed the right uh, even to vote for the electors who vote for president. So that's, um, I think, a bit of a surprise to some people. I'm looking at pages 42 and 43, and there's a timeline that contains simple illustrations that speak volumes, beginning with the picture of a slave ship in 1619, and ending with a picture of Barack Obama elected president in 2008. Would you talk about explaining that the word slavery wasn't explicitly used in the Constitution until the 13th Amendment, but so much of what was inferred was presumed to be law. Uh, the Constitution, absolutely, in its original form, without amendments, um, before the amendments, talks about slaves and talks about slavery, but does not use that word. I mean, they knew what they meant. There was no question about that. But it doesn't say slavery until the 13th Amendment, which ends it. The document talks about, yes, the three-fifths compromise, where for the House of Representatives, uh, states with more population, a higher population, get more representatives, which obviously is good for that state. So slaveholding states wanted to count their slaves in order to get more representatives, but had no intention of giving them the vote or the right to run for office or, or you know, in, enjoying the freedoms uh, that come along with, with that. And uh, non-slaveholding states cried foul and said, you, you can't do that. You can't count these people so that you get extra votes, so that every white person has you know, a, a higher percentage of voting. So they came to a compromise, we call the three-fifths compromise, and that is that for purposes of representation in the House of Representatives, a slave would be counted as three-fifths of a person. And even though that was a, a narrow definition for a specific purpose, the impact of that, you know, the, the inhumanity of that is, is really quite shocking. In fact, if there is a takeaway for young students from this book about the fragility of the document 
Much of it is in the fact that so huge a portion of what brought our country into being was the result of compromises and unifying very different political philosophies. Not easy to explain to young students, but I, I think the book does it well. On the eve of the 2020 election, as we are now, do you see young people before voting age more involved and more interested in issues of government and equality, the environment, than before? Absolutely. And uh, one thing that I get asked about quite a bit, and not just by young people, also by, by adults, but is about the, the 22nd Amendment, the two terms, the limitation to two terms for a president. Uh, that's an issue that people are, are interested in now and uh, want to make sure they have a constitutional grounding and understand what the Constitution says about that. Um, but there are other issues, certainly, as well. Um, you know, the Electoral College is more of a, um, some people want to abolish it, some people don't, and so it's, it's become more of an issue, I think, more of a political issue and less of just a, a um, kind of that, that dry document we all claim to have read and, and have it all. And presidential succession, uh, some of those uh, issues, what happens if the president um, becomes unable? We have two um, older candidates than, than typically we do. And um, what happens if the president becomes unable to do his job or you know, there are all sorts of strange situations. James Madison was almost captured by the British uh, the War of 1812. What happens if the commander-in-chief is, in fact, a prisoner of an enemy nation? Do you still let him uh, give orders to the army? You know, what if he says, lay down all your arms? Uh, what if he says, do the hokey pokey? Uh, you know, um, and the Constitution, you know, eventually makes clear that at that point, um, you know, that, that person cannot do so. You know, lots of issues involved with that as well. Katie, in the end, were there any discoveries for you writing this book? I'm, I, I knew the material fairly well, so I didn't suddenly discover an amendment I hadn't known or, you know, something like that. I, I knew, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about the fact that the 27th Amendment is one of the, the, the most recent one. We have 27 amendments, so it was passed and it was ratified in 1992. Um, it was actually one of the amendments that James Madison proposed as the um, 12 original amendments, 10 of which became the Bill of Rights, uh, the first 10 amendments in the Constitution, one of which would no longer make any sense. But the, the, the last one, um, I, I knew it become the, the 27th Amendment, but I never really thought about what a really long time that is uh, for something to be laying around. And um, uh, it, that actually became an issue when... Uh, student uh, got a C on his paper and wanted to prove to his teacher that um, that amendment would still be viable, which he had claimed. And so he got it ratified as part of the Constitution and his teacher went back and changed his grade to an A. Um, so I, I knew that, but hadn't really thought about the implications of that uh, before that. And um, thought that was kind of fun. Some of those surprises are fun. Some of those which you describe as trivia really are added details that just enrich our picture of 
the people who framed this document, which for all purposes is very much a living, breathing thing. Oh, absolutely. And even things like, you know, sometimes we, we don't realize in what a haphazard way things can come together. You know, in 1841, John Tyler the vice president for William Henry Harrison uh, became president after Harrison died a month into office in uh, the shortest tenure any president has had. And um, nobody really knew for sure at the time if Tyler would be the acting president. So he would do the job, but not really be the guy. Or if he was actually the president, it wasn't clear. And Tyler basically walked into the office and you know put his boots up on the desk metaphorically speaking, uh, and said, it me. And the cabinet said, well, we'll let you do the job, but you have to understand we're kind of in charge. And, you know, you, you just kind of keep going. And Tyler said, no, it me. I'm the president. Uh, and we call that the Tyler precedent, uh, that the vice president becomes the actual president. And, and that was the case uh, by custom until the 25th Amendment. But it's only that way because John Tyler just decided to walk in and take over. Katie Kennedy is the author of The Constitution Decoded, an illustrated guide to the document that shapes our nation. The phrase ethical fashion covers a range of issues such as working conditions, exploitation, the environment, and animal welfare. Bombshell, an ethical fashion brand offering contemporary West African clothing and merchandise made in Liberia, has opened its first shop in the United States at Pont City Market here in Atlanta. Arshel Bernard is the founder of Bombshell. She's with us now via Zoom. Arshel Bernard, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to tell the stories of our women and our team and the things that we make with you today. Well, great. Now, you own two businesses in Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia, correct? Yes. What inspired you to create the Bombshell Factory and Mango Rags Boutique? Well, Mango Rags was my first business. I started selling clothes out of the trunk of my car because I couldn't afford to make to buy the clothes that I wanted to wear. So I just started to make them. And people saw me on social media and they liked what I was wearing and they wanted some. So I saw it as a business opportunity. So for a year I was selling dresses out of the back of my car and then I saved up enough to open a shop. So Mango Rags opened in 2013 in Monrovia and it was so much fun. But at our one year anniversary, I remember hearing the first time of Ebola and what it was doing in rural Liberia. I did not feel like it was going to affect me in the city. And then it really did. So Mango Rags had to close after about a year and a half. And I came to the States and I looked around and I saw the real disruptors and the real people who were creating anything worth talking about were creating things that involved the community. 
And I realized that my business was a selfish business and I needed to find a way to center myself and see how I could help others. So I went back to Liberia after Ebola had slowed down and I opened the bombshell factory in 2016 so that I could hire and train women from backgrounds of poverty who wanted to work in fashion, but maybe didn't feel like they could, similar to me because we were in Liberia and nobody was looking at Liberia for fashion. So it's been really exciting to bring beautiful things from our small little country to you know Hollywood celebrities and, and also just beautiful, strong women all over the world. Now, you graduated from Georgia Tech, correct? Yes. What did you study? I was, they don't even have my major anymore, but I was in the liberal arts college. Um, my major is science, technology, and culture. So I studied this because I wanted to be the West African Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I thought that I would post videos, you know, and travel Africa like that. And um, it didn't work out that way, but I'm just grateful for the experiences. I have a feeling Oprah would approve of what you're doing. Have you ever approached her? Um, you know, it's funny. I don't think she and I shop at the same supermarket, but uh, if ever <laughs> she heard about me, I mean, you know, I think that the lasting lesson that she has imparted on me is, you know, it's not so much about what you're doing in front of the camera. It's about how you're making people feel and how you're impacting people's lives. And so that has been the big piece for me, right? I just want to make sure that I have a huge impact on everyone that I touch. Why Liberia? Why did you move there? My family, we're Liberian refugees. So my mother and father grew up in Liberia and left because of the war. And my grandfather stayed in Liberia for a, a long time. For me, when I graduated, I wanted to connect with home. In so many ways, I feel like I went back to hopefully see him, even though he had passed. Uh, and so I, I go and, you know, as I build my business, sometimes I have conversations with him in my head, like, would he be proud of the way that I'm doing things? Or what would that advice be? Liberia was once such a shining example of an independent African Republic. And now we're consistently the poorest. I know that we as people are stronger and better than what we may seem to be right now. And I wanted to be a part of that, that story. Let's talk about the name of this store. It's sort of a throwback. The word bombshell, you know, brings images of Marilyn Monroe to mind. It's sort of a mid-20th century term for uh, sexy beauty. Yours is spelled B-O-M-B-C-H-E-L. And why do you call the employees the bombshells? Well, I call employees bombshells and I call our customers bombshells because I really want to emphasize how connected we all are. We can't separate our makers from the purchasers because I think that that has a lot to do with putting space between us so that we don't care about the conditions that our clothes are made in. We have to know that we are all the same. 
I call everybody a bombshell. So whether you wear one, wear our clothes or you make our clothes, you are a bombshell because you're contributing to this new narrative for amazing, beautiful pieces coming out of West Africa that I don't think many people would think of without our factory. And in fact, then, bombshell with the C-H-E-L derived from your name is, is somewhat ironic, although empowering. Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up in North Cobb. We were the only Black family in the neighborhood and therefore, for sure, the only African family. And, you know, my name was always weird. Like, I could never get a birthday card with the name spelled right or could never find a mug or a keychain with my name on it. And every year I tried to reinvent myself or make my name more simple so that I wouldn't stand out as much. I went by Shelby for the longest. Oh, Art Shell is so much more elegant. I know. I went by Shelby for the longest because I just wanted to fit in, you know? I just really wanted to fit in. But the importance for me of spelling bombshell in that funky way that my name is spelled is that I'm saying, you know, this is it. I'm going to, uh, you guys are going to learn my name. You're going to learn how to spell it. You're going to learn how to say it, you know? And it's just going to be okay. And for all the other girls who have super weird names, they'll learn how to spell it. They'll learn how to say it. And it's going to be okay. The store bombshell just opened in Pont City Market. Please tell us about your decision to solely employ refugees living in Atlanta. Well, I'm a refugee. And I think that when people look at me, they don't see it. Like I'm hiding in plain sight, you know? And as I sit in the background and hear conversations around me about what refugees are and where they should be allowed to go and how they should be allowed to get there, I think about what my family was able to offer me because they sought a better life. And I want us to normalize working around refugees, shopping with immigrants, people of color. I just, I feel like we don't really know everybody's background stories. And I think that the more we know, the more we can understand. Indeed. Let's talk about the clothing and the merchandise. How would you describe the designs? Well, I really love how contemporary our clothes are. You know, I think back to when my mom, when I was little, And like I said, I was the only black girl at this school that I went to in Cobb County. And my mom would come pick us up from school in her full on African clothing, like head tied, everything. It was so embarrassing. And now this cloth is my life, but I do it in a different way. You know, I think every woman should be able to wear this African clothing, but she should be so comfortable. You know, we don't do any zippers, just a lot of elastics and a lot of wraps and ties so that things can fit a bunch of different body types in a way that is flattering to you. I feel like we've really reimagined the way people can wear African clothing so that you can feel, you know, I want to wear it casually in my home or I want to step out for a night or a nice drink. We just really try to fit a whole bunch of different lifestyles, ethnicities, skin tones, and body types. So I love that. And then I do a lot of hand dyeing. I learned how to hand dye in Liberia. And I I do a lot of hand dyeing now here. And with tie-dye being so popular right now, um, a lot of our customers are coming in for the tie-dye, but then they're also discovering they like some of the African wax print. So in that way, it's just a lot of advocacy through fashion. 
In addition to the contemporary designs you've described, do you sell any traditional Liberian garments in the store? We sell head wraps, but for the most part, no. I think that in order for us to be widespread and to fit so many different people, you know, traditional Liberian garments would involve like tailors and sewing machines and your personal measurements and things like that. And I want us to make sure that we get as many pieces on as many people as possible so that maybe there's a revolution that happens. Maybe everybody can start to see themselves in African fashion. So not that much traditional wear, but all of our cloth is sourced from Liberia. We buy it from local market women. So in that way, everybody is still touching a bit of my home. Arshel, why was it important for you to employ an all-female staff? You know, women in Liberia ended the war. And the women in Liberia have kept the country going, I think, in spite of so many of the other things that have happened there. And so for me, I'm so, so sincerely proud to be a Liberian woman. I feel that that bit of my history is just a blessing from God. And I wanted to bring other women that looked like me into this fashion space. I felt like it was the way I could do my part. And tailoring and clothing making is typically a men's um, occupation in Liberia. So it was so, so important to me that women work here making women's clothes because nobody knows a woman's body better than a woman. For me, it was just so deeply important because it made business sense, but also as my way to, I guess, thank the universe for making me a Liberian woman as well. What is the training process for the women who create the clothes? Yeah, I hire different tailors from places around Monrovia, people that have made clothes for me before. And I bring each of them in for a day or two to work with all of my team to sew the clothes. So I'll, maybe I'll design a pattern in Spain or here in Atlanta or whatever. I'll make that pattern. I'll take it to Liberia. A tailor will learn how to make it. And then he will show our team how to sew it. So as soon as we possibly can, we want our women to be the ones who are making this garment and to be the experts on it. So usually it just takes about two or three days. And I'm aware of their skill set when I pick new patterns. But um, we can usually get new styles out the door in less than a week. Hmm. Since opening the Bombshell Factory in 2016 for Ebola survivors, what has been the impact on these women's lives? One of our bombshells, her name is Miss Louise. She was in an abusive relationship when she first started to come work with us. It got worse as she was working with us because she was making more money than her husband and he didn't like that. And so many times her neighbors had to intervene when he would just be like, absolutely just beating her. And it got to a point where she made enough money that she was like, I actually don't have to do this anymore. And now she lives in her own home and she takes care of a lot of the family members because she's the most stable. So she takes care of her kids and a granddaughter and cousins. And whenever I go to her house, you know, she's in charge, but that is her home. So that is a big impact. And I, I love to have more 
you know, stories like that because working with us gave her a, a level of freedom that she wouldn't have had had she not worked with us. There's another bombshell named Beatrice and she's an Ebola widow. She didn't know how to read or write when she came to us. She couldn't even sign her name to collect her salary. And after working with us, she is the breadwinner. She is paying for her daughter to go to school. Her daughter is a teenager and she will be the first person in her family to have a formal education. I mean, it, it just adds to what her daughter will be able to do. One of our other bombshells, Blessing, she has been working with us. And after two years, she had saved up enough to go to college. She never even told me she wanted to go to college or we would have just paid for it. But it was so important to her that she paid for her own school. And now not only does she pay for her college, but also for her two brothers to go to school because her mother is out of work right now with things happening in the economy in Liberia. So all of our team members are the ones that are holding up their family financially and also just independently, letting their family members know that women are, are capable of having careers that take care of themselves and their families. Arshel Bernard is the owner of Bombshell, an ethical fashion brand located at Pont City Market in Atlanta. More information about her store and the Liberian Bombshell factory will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., WABE will bring you a special edition of Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. W-A-B-E wants to hear about your voting experience today. Were you stuck in line? Did you have a memorable moment or see something notable? Let us know at Georgia Votes 2020 at wabe.org. Send a voice memo, photos, or just type out your story. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.